when you're standing behind this pulpit that, that I'm familiar with and look out in a room that I'm familiar with and nobody's here, it's weird. You might be thinking the same exact thing sitting from where you are in your home or wherever you're watching this from thinking, yeah, this is weird to be having church uh, mobile. But you know what? It's the best option we got right now. So I'm thankful that you are deciding to, to be a part of continuing to grow in our time together as a church family uh, and continuing to press into God's word as we conclude our series on marriage today. Just a couple of things before we get started to make sure that you know in a different setting, a different format, uh, kind of how it's going to, kind of what to expect. Um, I don't really know what to expect. We're going to be proclaiming God's word uh, as has how he has led us to it. Um, as we talk and as we walk through God's word, I might find myself looking around the room like I normally would if you're here. I might just look deep straight into the camera. Uh, or whatever it is, but we just want to enjoy our time together. So ignore me and just let's pay attention to the to the focal point of our passage. Um, I'm kind of stealing a page out of Terrence's book and having our screen here with us since you don't have the two screens to go by. Uh, so we'll have our different graphics coming up here. And I also want to point out two two very important things based on some of the things that I've seen going around about pastors who preach just for the internet. I am wearing pants, as you can see here. And also, Jacob, I'm not wearing a Westmead shirt and a blazer because I'm not a t-shirt and blazer guy. You need to get that right next time you want to mock someone. But that's okay, too, because it was very entertaining. Uh, But what I want us to do today, and just like we would normally do if it were a regular Sunday, is I want us to go ahead and walk through and conclude our series on This Ain't a Love Song. And if you remember, if you've been with us or if you haven't, let me get you caught up to speed. Just walking you through, we've been walking, uh, had a four-week series on marriage and the pursuit of godly marriages. And while we're concluding that series today, I want you to know that Westmead is still a place that pursues godly marriages, that, that fans into flame the desire in our married couples to continue to pursue the Lord together so that he can not only enrich our lives and our testimonies individually, but corporally in the context of marriage that we are equally as efficient for the gospel as we were individually. Another advantage to being um, recorded instead of doing this live, I'm not really worried about how long I preach. Because guess what? You can always hit pause and go to the bathroom or do whatever you need to and come back later or whatever. But we're just going to have a good time enjoying this together. So I appreciate your patience and I look forward to seeing what God wants to do in our time together. Uh, so as we've been talking about godly marriages, we kind of walked through a few different things. The first time, the first thing we talked about is what, what is marriage? What is a godly marriage? What does that look like? What is the context of that? And we kind of unpacked that a little bit using, using Ephesians 5 and how God's word dis- defines how we are to approach marriage and how we are to live out marriage. Uh, we talked about communication in marriage and the the seriousness of it and how we should take the privilege of communicating with our spouse to a higher level of seriousness and and to a degree. Ben challenged us last week in the area of marriage and finance and how we work together. What we've been talking about, uh, and we look at marriage, we look at the three biggest issues in marriage, which is communication, money, and intimacy. Uh, But at the same time, as we talk about marriage and as we have discussed each week when we look at marriage, we have to understand that anything that we're being challenged to do and pursue in the context of marriage should first be being practiced in our relationship with God the Father. 
And just from a kind of a bird's eye view, you might be thinking, yeah, how is, how is what we're going to be talking about today applicable in my relationship with God? We're going to get there. Uh, but I just want to remind you that it doesn't matter if you're married or it doesn't matter if you're single. When it comes to God's word, the truths that are found in it are very applicable in our lives in the context of our relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ as initiated by the Holy Spirit. Uh, So I want to make sure that as we dive into today's topic, as we dive into today's word, that you understand that it doesn't matter your marital status. What matters is your relationship with God and how can we take God's word to to pour into our lives so that it can enrich our time and our fellowship with him and our relationship with him. So one of the things that's been clear and that thread that's been uh, sown through our entire series is that marriage should be the most beautiful and vivid picture of the gospel lived out in our lives. And some areas in which our marriages should reflect the gospel is that our marriage should not be self-serving. Our marriage loves sacrificially. Our marriage involves mutual submission, that that we are in mutual submissive relationship with our spouse. It forgives and it restores. And all these things that a marriage should do in reflecting the gospel should be practiced daily. It shouldn't be practiced when we're having a fight. It shouldn't be practiced when we're in disagreement. It shouldn't be practiced uh, in any other area. These are things that we should be pursuing the practice of daily in our relationships with each other. Why? Because it's a reflection of the relationship we have with God the Father in which it is not a self-serving love that we have for God. It is It is a love that we learned that was given sacrificially. It is a love that involves mutual submission. And not that God submits to us, but that we have the privilege of submitting to him. And Jesus submitted to the Father by taking the form of man and becoming like us on earth to show us what it looks like. It forgives and restores as does our relationship with God. And all of these things happen daily. These aren't things that just store up that happens daily. Therefore, in our marriage relationships and in our relationship with God, we should be figuring out and chasing after how we can pursue this daily. So as we wrap up this series, I want us to take a look at our final topic. And our final topic is intimacy. Now, I know last week when Ben preached, he was telling me a story that after he got done preaching, that uh, that one of our church members came up to him and said, yeah, I see the one that, that Justin strapped you with to get up there and talk about. Uh, which is just kind of a funny thing because when he was told me the story, we both kind of laughed about it. And uh, Just to kind of give you a little bit of a background, uh, some time ago when we were planning out this marriage series, I brought Ben and I said, hey, Ben, you're our, you're our family's pastor. You know, if we're going to do a marriage series and talking about the family, uh, I think it would be important for you to be a part of that and, and, and pick, a, pick a sermon. I would love for you to pick one of these and talk about it. Uh, And he said, okay. So we kind of started looking at it and talking. We're going to be talking about the three biggest issues in marriage and this and that. And he said, well, Justin, you were a communications major. So, so why don't, why don't, excuse me, why don't you do that one? And I'm like, okay, that, that makes sense. So so I looked at Ben. I said, okay, Ben. So between, so between uh, money and intimacy, which one money, uh, he didn't really hesitate. Uh, and that's another thing that makes it more awkward. Um, when you're in a recording setting is you don't, really get people laughing at your jokes but let's be honest nobody really laughs at my jokes anyway so it should not cause us to lag at all which we have so we're going to keep going so it was just kind of a funny thing that Ben did the money thing and uh, today we're going to be talking about intimacy Uh, so needless to say and 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 we're just presenting this as the same way I prepared it for Sunday before we had to cancel services needless to say uh, in the context of this room And in the context of wherever you're watching this, I'm not expecting a lot of amens 
um, or anything like that, mainly because it's out of fear uh, that somebody might hear you. I don't know. Um, But we're going to have a good time uh, diving into this topic of intimacy. Intimacy. The definition of intimacy is basically close familiarity. Familiarity, excuse me. Close familiarity. Uh, I, I wrote this quote down. Somebody defined it this way. They said, opening your life to have another person pour their life into yours and you pouring your life into theirs. This idea of intimacy is opening your life so that that person can pour their life into your life and then mutually you pour your life into there. And a lot of times when we talk about intimacy, we kind of uh, segment our brains to only think about sexual intimacy. Now don't get me wrong, sex is a major issue uh, when it comes to marriage, it is a contributing issue to healthy or uh, hurt marriages. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I want you to understand that when we talk about intimacy, that it's a lot bigger of a picture than just sexual intimacy. So in just a few minutes, we're going to kind of walk through. I'm going to show that how it's different. Intimacy can be different in, just, not in ways other than just sexual intimacy. But as an added bonus... And, uh, and I'll let you determine whether it's a good thing that you're not here doing this or if you're at home doing this. But as an added bonus, we're going to talk about the seven, seven different forms of intimacy that are not sexual intimacy. And when we kind of wrap up talking about each one of them, I'm going to give you a chance to practice each one of these forms of intimacy right where you are. You're welcome. All right. So uh, I jumped on the interwebs. And I started looking around for forms of intimacy and we came up with the seven areas of intimacy that are not sexual intimacy. And the first one is this. The first one is physical intimacy. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, physical intimacy is sexual intimacy. No, it's not. Absolutely not. I want you to to kind of distance and separate these two in your mind. When we say physical intimacy... Um, Guys, I'm just going to be honest. Men, this is kind of something that we're most stereotyped with being good at. Physical intimacy is just physical touch. It's holding hands. It's putting your arm around your spouse. Um, It's giving a hug. It's giving a kiss. Uh, It's just physical touch. It's one of the most common forms of intimacy practiced in marriage. And it should be. There's nothing wrong with these things. Um, It should be a common form. We should be uh, have a desire to show our spouse that we care about them and can practice intimacy in the physical form like that. So, told you you get to practice each one of these forms of intimacy. So, to practice physical intimacy, if you're a married couple and you're listening to this, then give your spouse a hug or a kiss on the cheek or something. And hopefully, yeah, you know, don't get too carried away. It's just physical intimacy, all right? So, uh, physical intimacy. Second type of intimacy we're going to talk about. Uh, mainly to move past the physical intimacy because some of y'all are whatever, uh, is emotional intimacy. There it is, emotional intimacy. And now as the guys are kind of stereotyped to lean more towards a physical intimacy, ladies, this is kind of your area that's kind of stereotyped, that women are more into emotional intimacy and, and, and not what we think it is. It's, it's Emotional intimacy is sharing your feelings. But it's not us sitting on a couch Uh, in sweatpants and a cup of coffee and just starting every sentence with I just feel like no that's not emotional intimacy I mean I guess you could kind of play it out in that context uh, of emotional intimacy but it's a lot deeper than that it's not just sharing our feelings it's it's sharing with our spouse real fears it's sharing with our spouse joys and, and joys lead to celebrations and victories it's sharing with our spouse things like our dreams 
and the things that we really aren't eager to share with everyone else. Again, we're talking about emotional, but the word behind it is intimacy. We're talking about going deeper. We're talking about opening our lives and having our spouse pour their life into ours and us mutually pouring our life back into theirs. Emotional intimacy is talking about this idea uh, and not necessarily the ooey-gooey, mushy things you say to each other, but just the real things that that you think about or you feel inside that you just kind of want to express a little bit. One of the words that can be associated with emotional intimacy is vulnerability. And vulnerability is huge in the term, in, in terms of that, uh, and I remember learning this years ago, that if you want people to trust you, you have to practice vulnerability. You have to be vulnerable to that person. Uh, and this is where it comes into play, is emotional intimacy. So for practicing emotional intimacy, uh, I want you to tell your spouse why you're uncomfortable right now. And I'm pretty sure you are. They might, even, they might already know how you're uncomfortable right now, but why don't you practice emotional intimacy And tell your spouse why you're uncomfortable right now. Don't worry. I'll wait. Wonderful. Moving on. Next is spiritual intimacy. And we think about this and be like, well, it's church, Justin. You should have started with that. I'm just going in the order in which they were given. Spiritual intimacy is the third form of intimacy. And and to put it in the context of what we practice and to put it in the context of what God's word desires. You can talk about spiritual intimacy and the world has its own definitions of spiritual intimacy, but we're putting it in the context of God's word and his great love for us. But uh, to bring it down to what we're talking about in terms of spiritual intimacy uh, is we're talking about the type of intimacy that occurs when you and your spouse pursue the Lord together. We're talking about the type of intimacy that, that you and your spouse are consistent and encouraging one another in your relationship and in your walk with Christ. And guys, I want you to think bigger. I'm not talking about sitting in the same Sunday school class as your spouse. Yes, that's a part of spiritual intimacy, but you're also doing that with 5, 10, 20, 30 other people. That's not necessarily an intimate environment. When we talk about spiritual intimacy, it's talking about your intentional pursuit of the Lord together. And you're just, that, that means is you're just as concerned about growing in your relationship with Christ as you are concerned for your spouse to grow in your relationship with, spot, with, with Christ. Men, this is why you're called to be the head of the household and to lead your wife. So that you're pursuing the Lord individually and that you're also making sure that she is growing in her relationship with with the Lord. And guess what? When y'all are growing in relationship with the Lord together, you're naturally going to be growing together. So a way to practice spiritual intimacy right now is husbands... I'm going to ask you to say a 10, 12 second prayer for your spouse at this time. Pray for your spouse right now and do it out loud. All right. Amen. Good job. I hope you did that, by the way. And if you didn't, you just have that awkward silence. Men, ladies, We have to practice spiritual intimacy if we're going to create a household uh, that honors the Lord. It cannot be heavily dependent on one or the other. It must be mutually together, growing in your relationship with God the Father. The fourth type of intimacy we're going to talk about is 
Intellectual intimacy. Intellectual intimacy. Simply put, it's respecting your spouse's opinions. We talked about intellectual intimacy without calling it that when we talked about communication uh, two weeks ago. Uh, We talked about the idea of recognizing that you're two different people. And the goal of marriage is not to make the other person a mirror image of you or for them to think just like you or to act just like you, but to respect who they are in terms of their background and why they think the way they do and what leads them to these conclusions. Uh, This is intellectual intimacy. It can only be achieved with healthy communication. You understand that. Intellectual intimacy cannot be held if we're not communicating with one another. And when we talk about intellectual intimacy, I'm talking about sharing ideas, sharing opinions, uh, getting, coming together and working things through together intellectually. These are, these are things like Ben talked about last week. Intellectual intimacy is practiced when you, when you plan out a budget together. When you sit down together and you plan out a budget or a spending plan for your family. Uh, when, you're, when you're determining your next vacation spot. Uh, When you're talking about your favorite TV shows, all of these things that you have the privilege of communicating to one another is practicing intellectual intimacy. This also is going to to really go through the roof. Intellectual intimacy is really going to go through the roof when you become a great practicer of listening. So that when your spouse is sharing with you their ideas, their opinions, their uh, whatever they are thinking about, you're listening to that and receiving that. And that makes them feel loved and respected and makes them want to, tr- in turn, give that back to you. That's intellectual intimacy. So let's practice intellectual intimacies for just a moment. I want you to share with your spouse your favorite outfit that they wear. And guys, and some of you ladies, you cannot say, well, what you're wearing right now is perfect. No, no, no. I'm eliminating that. You cannot say, you look good in anything either. You can't say that. I want you to tell your spouse the favorite, your favorite outfit they wear. Go. Uh, boy, I hope Justin hurry up and start talking so we don't have to finish this. No. Tell your spouse your favorite outfit they wear. And if I don't give you enough time, by all means, hit, hit pause or something so you can continue this conversation. The reason we tell you, hey, talk about your favorite outfit that they wear is... You're, a, you're complimenting your spouse by telling them, I really like the way you wear this or whether, whether the way you look in this. But you're sharing with them your opinions of something that they wear. Uh, and it's also encouraging. The next thing I want us to talk about, number five, is experiential intimacy. Experiential, experiential intimacy. You're married. You do stuff together. Uh, some of the things you do together, you really like. Some of the things you do together, your spouse really likes. Some of the things you do together, you both really like. Experiential intimacy is about the things you do. But understand this, experiential intimacy is also defined by the things you enjoy doing that your spouse doesn't. Let me explain. Basically, if I can unpack it quickly, is this. If the husband likes doing something that the wife... Let's put it this way. So the wife really loves going to the drag strip. And she loves the drag strip and loves watching the cars and hearing the noise and not being able to hear the next day and all these things. And the guy, man, he hates it. He just wants to stay at home and watch Hallmark movies, right? And then the, the wife is like, man, I can't stand Hallmark movies. I'm going to the drag strip. These are two different things. They're like, well, how do you have experiential intimacy together? What you're doing is you're, you're recognizing that, hey, my spouse does things that I don't want to do. So I'm going to value what their interests are 
I'm going to listen to them when they talk about those interests, but that doesn't necessarily mean I have to be a part of them. Now, you might be thinking, well, Justin, how is that intimacy if it's two different things? What you're saying is I value you and the ways you're made and the things you like. doesn't mean I have to do them with you, but I also value the things that you, are, that you like and are a part of. This is experiential intimacy. The greatest form of experience... Sorry, it's hard to say when you put all these vowels together. The greatest form of experiential intimacy that you can accomplish is by identifying the things you both really enjoy and doing them together. Let's say you both really like to exercise and uh, one of you likes to go to the gym at six o'clock in the morning and and one likes to exercise after work, you know, to just kind of blow some steam off. Well, maybe there are certain times where y'all can exercise together. Either the, the, the afternoon person can wake up and go to the gym one morning or the, the gym one morning could enjoy some time of sleeping in and exercise in the afternoon. It doesn't even have to do anything with, with any high energy stuff. It could just be something you enjoy doing together. But make time to be intentional to experience life together and enjoy the things your spouse enjoys together. So here's the practice thing for you to do. Name three things you both enjoy doing together. Name three things you both enjoy doing together. Go. Well, that was easy, wasn't it? Good. All right. Number six, conflict intimacy. Uh, Now, this one, it kind of sounds like an oxymoron. How can you have conflict intimacy? Uh, And what we're talking about here, it's, it's a legitimate thing, conflict intimacy. I mean, let's be honest. You're two different people. At some point in time, you're going to come in conflict with one another. Now, you shouldn't be looking to come in conflict with one another. That's a sign of an unhealthy form of communication. It's a sign that there's some things in your marriage you've got to get to work on. And if that's you, don't ignore it. Get to work on it. Make your marriage better. But in terms of conflict intimacy, what we're talking about here is the accomplishment of knowing that you two can experience conflict and work through it together to overcome the wall that's created by your conflict. It's that, that, that feeling of achievement that when we say, hey, we had conflict, we worked through it together, and we kept moving forward. It's kind of like when you climb a hill. It's when you top a wall. It's something that you've been working hard and went hard on doing, and when you finally accomplish it, you look back and say, man, we were able to walk through that. We were able to talk our way through it. We ever work uh, to come to a common ground, and it gives you that form of intimacy in moving forward and saying, hey, whatever comes ahead, as long as we're together, we can accomplish it together. Conflict intimacy. Uh, So one of the ways I want you to practice this is share one thing your spouse has helped change your mind about. Share one form of intimacy, not intimacy, share one conflict that y'all once had that your spouse helped change your mind about. Go for it. You're still thinking, aren't you? That's awkward. All right, well, maybe you need to come back to that one if you didn't finish, but we're going to keep moving forward. And the last one I want us to talk about, seven areas of intimacy that are not sexual intimacy, is creative intimacy. Creative intimacy. And this is basically very simply explained. It's this. Finding ways to communicate your spouse to your spouse that you love them that's a little different than you do it normally. If you're the guy that just tells your spouse you love them as you walk out of the, out of the house then to find a different way that you communicate to your spouse that you care about them. Uh, finding creative ways to let your spouse know that you love them, that you're thinking about them, that you miss them, that you want to talk to them. Find different ways, find creative ways 
to talk with you about that. I shared with you all a couple weeks ago about that, that goofy story about the puzzle. That's creative intimacy, just finding new ways to communicate your love for your spouse. So, uh, practice. Before, uh, I was going to say before the service is over, but since, you know, y'all aren't in here, uh, here's what I want you to do. Uh, before the end of the day, I want you to find something in your house that you can write on, and I want you to write your spouse a love note. It could just say, I love you and sign your name. It doesn't have to be anything extravagant. It doesn't have to be a poem. Just find something in your house, a piece of paper. You might find a a dry erase marker and write it on the mirror in the bathroom. Just find somewhere to leave your spouse a love note. Now, if you commonly do that on a regular basis, then that's not creative intimacy and you're just going to have to come up with something different. But, uh, but I want you to practice creative intimacy. So, so we've walked through these seven forms of intimacy that were not sexual intimacy because I wanted to show you that intimacy is not always involving sexual activity. Uh, if that's the only type of intimacy you seek within your marriage, then trust me, you're doing it wrong. And you're missing out on the multiple ways that you experience the joy and the bliss that comes in a happy marriage. Uh, So understand this, all these forms of intimacy that we just walked through, I'm hoping that you're intentional about practicing. And if you're not already doing it, uh, then what's stopping you from trying it out? Do different ways to practice uh, intimacy on this level. But sexual intimacy, like we talked about earlier, is a big issue. It is something that must be given attention to. Uh, when it comes to our marriage, when you talk about sexual intimacy, a couple of things you need to know about. The statistics show that people in marriages that have an absence of sexual intimacy, those marriages have a higher degree of divorce rate, they have a higher degree of infidelity, and they have a much higher degree of, of, of spousal partners admitting that they're in an unhappy marriage. Sexual intimacy is very important in terms of fulfilling your marriage to one another. And I'm not trying to be crude, but in the confines of of marriage, where married people are healthy enough for it, then sexual intimacy, and at least the communication about sexual intimacy, is a good thing. It is beneficial to your marriage. Uh, We need to understand, we talk about this often, that if God's word talks about something, then we can't be afraid to to listen to it. Uh, And I want to invite you to turn uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as we dive into God's word today and what God's word, how he addresses sexual intimacy. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I just want to give you a little bit of a background. Um, First of all, you need to understand that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And Corinth was a very sexually immoral city. It had a lot of little g gods um, that were dedicated to sex, um, that people worshipped. Uh, prostitution was commonly practiced. It was, it was rampant in the streets. Matter of fact, there were several religions and little g gods built around sex. So prostitutes in some forms of these weird forms of cults, uh, were, were basically known as, as priestesses or prophetesses, uh, because they were prostitutes. Um, sexual promiscuity was also common. Whether you were married, whether you weren't married, sleeping with whoever you want was, was perfect, was allowed. It was celebrated. Sex itself was celebrated. It was flaunted. It was rubbed all over your faces in every which way. And, and in the context of this, in the context of, of the passage we're going to be looking at, Paul is addressing the issue because this sexual immorality had, had infiltrated the church. And he's taken it and he's addressing this in 1 Corinthians 7. He's just acknowledging the society that's around him. But man, let's be honest. Talking about sexual 
promiscuity, talking about a sexual immorality, it's not foreign for us to imagine a society that's like that, is it? And doesn't this sound like a lot of the society we know in the sense of how sex and sex sells and sexual immorality is just kind of flaunted everywhere? Let's look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That is in quotes. And what he's talking about here is because Paul had been to Corinth and he's writing them a letter, but that also means that he's probably heard, gotten some type of correspondence from the church in Corinth. He probably had a conversation with somebody from the church in Corinth and they said, hey, uh, we always heard uh, basically abstinence. It's not good for a man to have sexual relationships with a woman. That's what he's talking about here. He addresses this in verse 1. He says, and now for the matters you wrote about. In other words, you wrote me a letter. Hey, is it good for... For, for men to have sexual relationships with women, we've heard it's not. He addresses it. Verse 2, he says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that, and Justin's gift is his wife Amanda because she's awesome. Uh, That's actually not at the end of verse 7. That was something that I added in um, that was irrelevant. Moving on. Uh, So we see this, and I'm just going to be honest with you. When we look at these seven verses in in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, they speak for themselves. I get it. But there's three things I want to pull out of this to make sure you understand how Paul is addressing. Now, we understand Paul never married. At least up to this point in time, he was not married. And from what we understand of everything related to his life, he never married. Uh, So that's what he's talking about in verse 7. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am, because he's talking about how uh, because he was, he's not married, he doesn't have what he would probably consider the the burden of making sure he's maintaining a relationship with his spouse as he's going around and proclaiming the gospel of the Lord. Uh, So I want us to talk about, now he's not... He's not saying marriage is bad. He's not saying, oh, you should not be married because it's unhealthy or a horrible thing. No, one of the things that Paul is talking about here is he's celebrating what God invented in the the form of marriage. So let's look at this. Number one, first thing he points out in this text is that sexual intimacy is meant for the marriage bed only. And we talked about this at the very beginning when we were defining what is marriage. We need to understand this. Verse two, he spells it out for the church that sex is is meant between a husband and wife. It is meant for marriage. Between a husband and a wife. If you are not married, this is God's word of saying that you should be practicing sexual purity. Because sex is done in the context of marriage. Whether you're teenagers, whether you're single agains, whether you're young adults, whatever it is, God's word commands us that sexual intimacy is for marriage 
only. And if you're in a, in a lifestyle outside of your marriage or not, in, not even married and you're practicing this, you're ruining your intimacy with God because you're trying to please the body that is not meant for you. So understand that the first thing God point, that God points us to here through the words of Paul is that sexual intimacy is for the marriage bed only. Second thing I want us to see in this is that sexual intimacy is designed as another form of mutual submission to be practiced within the marriage. We talked about in Ephesians 5 when we first started breaking down marriage of how Ephesians 5 was pointing to mutual submission that a husband and a wife share together. It's not the wife bowing down to the husband. It's not the husband bowing down to the wife. But it's mutual submission they share together as well as their mutual submission to the father. Uh, so what they see in this is, is he's talking about this idea of mutual submission. Look in verses 3 and 4, what he talks about here. He uses the words uh, in verse 3. Husband should fulfill his marital duty. He uses the word fulfill and he uses the word duty here. And this is not done with the purpose of, of obligation. It's the privilege of a new way we can serve one another in ways that the rest of the world cannot. It's this intimacy that you share in a marriage that the world is left on the outside and has no idea what that's like. It's a way that you serve one another. He uses it again in verse, uh, in verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband yields it to us. This, this word yields, submissive, surrendering it over to your spouse. Again, pointing to the equality that you share within the context of marriage in the form of sexual intimacy, that you are to serve one another. Men, this means that you're not to be, to be demanding in the context of sexual intimacy. Because it's a mutual thing. You're yielding, you're submitting, you're, you're, you're fulfilling your duty to serve your wife in this way. Women, what he's talking about here is that sexual intimacy is not to be used as some type of bargaining chip. And I know that sounds crude, and I know that sounds weird, but in the context of the world we live in, we see that kind of laughably celebrated in that form of context, that we're withholding sexual intimacy until we get what we want. That's another way that we're using it to serve ourselves. And we use sexual intimacy according to God's word for the building up of our marriage, for, for the serving our spouse, of putting their needs in front of our own, just like we said in Ephesians 5. This is how we serve one another in the context of sexual intimacy. Because we yield, we fulfill our duty and privilege of serving our spouse. Which means, again, men, you are not to be demanding in the context of sexual intimacy. And being demanding and, and, and wanting and craving, you're trying to please yourself. The overriding factor here should always be the greater needs of your spouse. It should always be our heart when we approach the idea and the topic of sexual intimacy in our marriage to find a new way to serve our spouse in this way. Number three, third thing that we want to pull out from this text. And this is kind of long and lengthy, so I'm just going to read it. Sex, sexual intimacy is meant to be used to bring married people closer together in growing in your faith, as well as meant to protect each other from sexual temptation and sin. Look, in the context that we do and we pursue the Lord, there is a thing called fasting. And we can fast from just about anything. And the purpose of fasting is for us to set something that takes a portion of our time aside so that we can use that, that 
allotted amount of time to pursue, pursue holiness in our lives. A lot of times when we fast, the things that we set aside is something that we recognize that we are giving too much time to, and it's taking away our pursuit of holiness. So we set it aside so that we can pursue holiness in this area. Look in verse 5, what Paul writes about here. He says, do not deprive each other. He's talking about do not depriving each other of sexual intimacy unless it's by mutual consent and for a short for a period of time what he's talking about here what he's insinuating is that both of you come together and you agree hey you know what sexual intimacy is something we're going to set aside so that we can pursue holiness together in our marriage in order to draw closer to god it's not something that one spouse chooses to set aside and the other does it it must be a decision that's formed together for the good of your marriage to grow in your relationship together with God the Father. Sexual intimacy is meant to bring you closer together and growing in your faith. But it's also meant to protect each other from sexual temptation, to protect each other from sexual sin. Look what he says here. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He knows that the enemy loves to try to get his grips, he gets his fingers in your marriage and to distract you by looking elsewhere. If you need some examples of this, just look at this. Number one, Paul uses this term when he talks about this. He's, he's actually saying, do not deprive each other. He's talking about do not rob each other. The word he uses here is, is the word rob or, or like to what a thief would do. Do not rob from each other the privilege of sexual intimacy so that you would lose out on the way that you can serve your spouse and be served by your spouse. But look at this, that this is exactly how, and, and Paul acknowledges, this is how the Satan, Satan wants to attack your marriage. I'm going to show, read you some of these things. A couple of things. One of the things is this. When there are companies in the United States whose tagline for their business is, life is short, have an affair, and that's marketable, we have evidence that the enemy is obsessed with destroying marriages. If you look at the the statistics, and for a long time the statistics within the church have even been that 50% of marriages are ending in divorce. It's because that the enemy has made war against our marriages. Think about outside of marriages. Pornography is now a $12 billion a year company, industry. 12 billion with a B, and that's just in the United States alone. Pornography worldwide is a $97 billion industry worldwide. Why? Because the enemy understands that sexual intimacy is something that we long for, we desire, and the more opportunities he can create uh, misrepresentations of it to distract us and to draw our attention away from it, he's going to do it. Whether it's commercials, whether it's TV shows, whether it's music lyrics, whether it's billboards, whatever it is, he's going to put things out there to try to distract people from the pursuit of what God has in store for marriage and attract them into sinful lifestyles. It's evident everywhere. The saturation of sex in our culture is immeasurable. And we talked about it a little bit earlier. The idea of sex sells, it's all over the place, even in ways that you don't even make sense. But they're using it. It's working. The desire for purity with intimacy with our spouse, it's always been in jeopardy. And it always will be. Our flesh, church, our flesh will crave sin when we starve it from what it, is, what it craves the most. 
which is obedience through the submission of what God's word commands us to do. When we're not having a healthy diet of God's word, when we're not consuming a healthy diet of being in the presence of the Lord and pursuing him with our whole heart, then suddenly if we're starving ourselves of that, then it's going to go find sustenance somewhere else. My kids come home sometime and they're, they're not really hungry for dinner. Well, you know why? Because they crammed themselves full of candy at school today. Is that good for them? Absolutely not. But it covers up their appetite for the things that are good for them. Sometimes that happens in Sunday school and they don't want to eat lunch because their Sunday school teacher pours candy and donuts in them. I'm just going to let conviction speak for itself because I may or may not have been in a position where I enjoyed that. But yes, you know what I'm saying here? The idea of what we crave, what we're healthy for, what we're created to hunger for, that's going to be good for us, that's going to grow us, that's going to help us, even in the context of our marriage, when we're not consuming a healthy diet of what God intended for us, then we're naturally going to start look, turning to alternative sources to be filled with these things. The idea of sexual intimacy is something that we have to be at the forefront of our minds in the context of our marriage. It happens uh, through communication. It happens through being open and talking about it and having these conversations because we have natural fleshly desires uh, that the enemy is going to cash in on within the context of our marriage if we're not going to pursue the Lord in them. We already identified ways that he is attacking marriage. See, yes, sexual intimacy is a big issue when it comes to God's word. And like I said, it speaks for itself. But in the context of marriage, it means uh, practicing intimacy in a way that honors God and serves our spouse. But I'll also remind you, just like we talked about earlier, intimacy itself is a much bigger issue than sexual intimacy. And just like we talked about even before that, is that everything we talk about in the context of marriage should first be practiced in our relationship with God the Father. So what I want to do, I want to ask you to flip over into Psalms chapter 63. Psalms chapter 63, I ask you to turn there so that we see when we approach intimacy, when we talk about intimacy, we see the type of intimacy that God had in mind uh, with us from the beginning. And we hear it from the lips of King David in Psalm 63. Listen to what he writes here. Psalm 63, beginning in verse 1. You, God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. My singing lips, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Do you think that brother had an intimate relationship with God? 
Did you just hear what he wrote? Do you believe that God is calling you to have an intimate relationship with him in the same way? Now, we instantly sit back and disqualify ourselves and be like, man, that's really something right there, but there's no way I could do that. Why not? Don't you remember what intimacy is? Maybe you don't. And instead of hitting rewind, let's just kind of walk back through it. So let's look at this passage and talk about these seven forms of intimacy that we can have with God. And we're not even talking about sexual intimacy. Look at this first one. We talk about this in physical intimacy. Look at what he says here. My whole being longs for you. In verse 2, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Look at how he's recognizing the presence of the Lord and how he longs for that. He's longing to be with God in, 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 in glory at the end of this life. But he's also talking about how he has experienced the fullness of God when he meets with God. And this is kind of difficult for us to, to fathom right now in the world we were living in with the coronavirus and we're called to be uh, socially isolated and all of these things. But, but think about this thing. What happens when you come up in this church building? What happens when the church gathers? We care for one another. We love on one another. I can't tell you how many people have told me story after story after story when I was going through loss, when I was dealing with a difficult time. Man, somebody came up to me and they just put their arm around me. They gave me a hug. Somebody came to my house and visited me. It's this physical desire we have to be loved by God. And he does so through his church. What other types of intimacy can we have? Look at this. He says it is emotional intimacy in verse three. Look at what he says here. Because your love is better than life. Now, he didn't have a measuring stick on life and say, well, this is where God's like. No, because he's not. He's talking about this idea that his emotional intimacy, what he feels like, what is important to him, what he craves, that is more important than life itself is the love of God. That's intimacy. Look at what he says in terms of spiritual intimacy. He starts off with this in verse one. You, God, are my God. He says it again in verse four. I will praise you as long as I live. You talk about spiritual intimacy. It's my pursuit of the Lord. It is my desire to have an intimate relationship. Why? Because he is my God. You're not just the God. You are my God. That is an intimate relationship here. He talks about intellectual intimacy down in verse five. Look at what he says in intellectual intimacy. I will be fully satisfied. We talked about intellectual intimacy. You remember we talked about intellectual intimacy? Sharing ideas with, with your spouse or the person that you're in an intimate relationship with. You're sharing ideas with them. You're listening to them, but you're also recognizing how they're spurring you on to greater thought. And what he gives to the, when he thinks about God, when he thinks about his relationship with God, when he thinks about his life apart from God or with God, he says, I will be fully satisfied. There's nothing else that I need. There's nothing else that I stand on that's going to satisfy, that's going to justify, that's going to complete me the way that my, my relationship with God is. It's intellectual intimacy. Experiential intimacy. He says this down in verse 7. Because you are my help. Y'all, go read and study the life of David. He was up and down all over the place. He made monumental mistakes. And he ran back to God in the middle of his failures. And who was the one that helped him? Who was the one that helped him out? Who was the one that lifted him out of the pit, which he talks about in another psalm? It was the Lord. He says this in verse 7, because you are my help. He says in verse 8, I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. He didn't come to those conclusions just because he heard about how good God was. He came to these conclusions because he experienced the intimacy of knowing God, the Father. Look at this in conflict intimacy. You can look at all this in verses 9 through 11 where he's talking about uh, this conflict that he had when he talks about these people, uh, they're out to destroy him, the enemies that he faced. 
He was essentially saying, I'm opposed by those who would kill me, but the Lord will overcome. How can he say this? Because in in David's life, and most of the time David was the one causing the conflict between him and the Lord, what happened? The Lord overcame David's sin. Lord overcame David's enemies and promised to restore and continue to restore and walk with and lead and guide David in their relationship. That's conflict intimacy. And you talk about creative intimacy. Do you really need me to go there? How does David exhibit creative intimacy in the Psalm 63 passage? Well, let me just Let me just ask you, how do you think David pursued the Lord into terms of creative intimacy when he says this, I seek you, I long for you, I thirst for you, I beheld your power and glory, my lips will glorify you, I will praise you, I will lift my hands, my mouth will praise you, I remember you, I think of you, you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings, I cling to you, but the king will rejoice in God, this Man has pursued the Lord in trying to share this creative intimacy with the Father because of this deep relationship he has with him. Church, our intimacy with the Father should be something that we daily pursue with reckless abandon. It should be one of the things, one of the first things on our mind when we wake up is the intimacy we share with the Father. It should be one of the last things that goes through our mind as we lay our head down on our pillow each night to go to sleep was the intimacy and the relationship we share with God the Father in every moment that we could possibly have in between waking and sleeping of intimacy with God we should pursue with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Our God created us to have an intimate relationship with with him it cost him a great deal to love you you me our church i still don't understand how we are daily invited into a deeper relationship with god the father an intimate relationship that is more exclusive than any relationship we will ever have on the face of this planet. And you know, maybe, maybe you're sitting there watching this. <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe you're sitting there watching this. And everything that we've been talking about in context of you and God is foreign. And I'm not talking about the depth and the intimacy. I'm just talking about the idea of a relationship with God the Father. God's desire for you is that you would be known by him and to know him so that you would understand that if you're known by God, then you know what it means to be loved by God. So if you've never opened your life to Christ to experience not just the depth of the intimacy, but just the beginnings of a loving relationship with God the Father, and he is calling you even now. He's calling out his love for you. He's calling you by name because he is intimately concerned with your life. And it's just a response of crying back out to God and saying, God, I get it. I want to be loved by you in the way I was created to be loved by you. But God, I know that I have sinned and that has separated, that has broken our relationship. We never had a relationship because I was born in sin. 
Father, forgive me of my sin so that I can be loved by you, that you would become my Savior, my Redeemer, that you would forgive me of my sin and make me your own. And God, that I would choose every day to chase after you with an intimate relationship. You know, there's, there's a lot of you that might be watching this that you say, man, I've done that. I have a relationship with God the Father. I promise you this. You don't know him near as well as you could. And I'm not trying to insult you and your desire and your relationship with God. I'm just telling you the simple truth that there is so many more layers and so much more depth of God that if we're content with where we are in our relationship, we're missing out. It's just like we said earlier that uh, in the context of marriage, if the only intimacy you're pursuing is sexual intimacy, then you're missing out a whole lot of ways that you can love and be loved by your spouse. Imagine that times about a jillion or bajillion jillion of what you're missing out in your relationship with God the Father. The intimacy he's created you for and the intimacy that he's calling you into. It's so much more than we could possibly imagine on our own. But it requires on our end a desire to take one step deeper, go one step further, and trust God a little bit more. It might cost us something, but I assure you it won't cost us as much as it cost him when he called you by name. Wherever you are, if you know God, if you don't know God, I promise you this, he's worth knowing and he's worth knowing more than you know him now. I pray that you don't stop and be content in your relationship, but you hunger and desire more for what God has for you. Let me pray for you real quick. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the privilege we have that even through Uh, technology, God, we can still come together and share your word. God, I thank you for the privilege we have of being able to open your word and to see your thoughts and to hear your commands in the context of of all the areas of our life. God, exclusively today as as we wrap up the context of marriage, I pray that it is the earthly relationship that we pursue greater than any relationship we have ever had or will ever have. God, I pray for the marriages in our church that they would be Christ-honoring, that they would exalt you, Father, that you would receive the glory. And most importantly, God, for the outsiders looking at their marriage, that they see a clear representation of the gospel at how well the husbands love and serve their wives and the way the wives love and serve their husbands. So, God, I pray that even while we as a church are apart, that you continue to preserve us by your word, that you keep us safe, that you keep us healthy, that you keep us wise. But God, during this time in which we have never seen before, that we take time to intentionally pursue your desires on, your, on, our, on the designs for marriage that you've given us. God, in the terms of sexual intimacy, Father, I pray that the husband and the wife can begin having healthy communication of how they can restore that element to their marriage that you would be honored and glorified in it. God, in these other areas of intimacy that we would be intentional to pursue our spouse in those contexts, but regardless if we're married or not, that we would be intentional to pursue you so that we can know you more and have the confidence of loving you and being loved by you the way David had and showed us in Psalm 63. God, thank you again for the privilege we have of meeting together even in this format. Go before us, God. And God, I selfishly ask for the day that we all gather together under one roof that it comes swiftly and soon. 
But God, every day between now and then, may we be found faithful with what you have given us and how you've entrusted us with the things under our watch. God, be glorified in our lives. May we be faithful with the gospel and loving others. And may we seek to glorify you in all things we say and do. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for your time today.